USAA, we're going to bring adventure racing to the masses. We're going to help people understand what the sport is, maybe starting with friends, family, coworkers, colleagues, you know, people that are one degree of separation, if you will, from an adventure racer. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. Today, we welcome United States Adventure Racing Association Executive Director Michael Garrison as he breaks down the 2021 National Championships. He shares his thoughts on the race and what he saw out on the course. He also gives us a taste of the future of USARA, the state of the 2022 Nationals, and shares the planned race location. Buckle up, East Coast racers. We're heading west. Garrison is expansive in his thoughts and effusive. That's right, folks. I'm pulling out the SAT words today in his praise of the teams that he saw at Nationals. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the Dark Zone. The, uh, the, the Dark Zone is happy to welcome back uh, Michael Garrison, the Executive Director of the United States Adventure Racing Association. Uh, Garrison is in the, uh, the post-race glow of a successful Nationals experience. So Garrison, great work from you and your team. And Paula Waite from 180 Adventure did a great job. The media was spot on. You were everywhere to be found. You were There were live updates and there was tracking. And it just it, it feels like everything went well. And you had sunny weather. So tell us, how was your Nationals experience? Uh, you hit a lot of the high points. <laughs> uh, no, the short answer is it was fantastic. Um, it went as well as we could have hoped for and better. Um, with it being my first one, you know, obviously I had some stress and anxiety going into it, just kind of the unknown. Um, and it's been about 10 years or more since I was involved directly in directing races. So that had been... You know, a little bit of rusty there, uh, but like you mentioned, Paula and her team were fantastic. She had a wonderful crew of volunteers, which made things so much easier. We had the USARA staff, we had a big media team, we had Mark Harris on tracking, and honestly, the energy of all the racers and seeing everybody together again after two years, I think that brought everything to the next level, and I think they gave everybody a little bit of a boost for the weekend. So, um, and then obviously, you know, we called ahead and reserved that weather, which was just about as perfect as you could hope for. <laughs> uh, so that was that was spot on. And our hosts were great too. We got really lucky in that um, we had a host location that logistically was good and centrally located, but they were wonderful working with us. And they actually said when I was wrapping things up Sunday before heading home, um, that they they loved our our group and that they hope we could come back again. And if they if we wanted them as a reference, um, you know, for future events to, to please give them a call. So checked all those boxes and, and couldn't be happier there. To your point, uh, it was our return to a national championship after 2020 was a virtual national championship, which was the, the shirts and the fun. And we all kind of did it on our own. But that was a stopgap way to get us forward during the time of COVID. And it felt as if we were we were back following that. Um, talk to a bit about the, the 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 size of the field, how many racers you had, things like that. Give the the listener, if you can, um, a broader understanding of nationals, because a lot of our listeners are people who are dipping their toes into adventure racing. Right? They've listened to your your your, your podcast number one is very popular, um, one of the more popular ones. We send people to it all the time when they have to learn about adventure racing. Narrow it down a little bit. Tell us a bit about. Um, like I said, field size, the the course itself, 
things like that. Right. So as far as field size, we had 55 teams. We had one or two, unfortunately, I had to drop the last minute for injuries and things like that, which which always happens. But we had 55 teams of three people each. And we had, I think, 39 states represented, which that was the real, like, if you want to break it down to metrics, that was the real super impressive one is that we drew a broad field from across the entire country. Everybody commented on the competitiveness of the field. It was easily the most competitive national championship field that I've seen. You had some teams coming back that hadn't raced for a long time in the national championship. I think we had at least one team that was there for the very first one, 21 or 22 years ago. And um, they came back and raced. And so from the perspective of watching a competitive event that made it really exciting you know because you had teams that normally come into a race super confident yeah we're going to go top three we're going to try and win and all of a sudden you saw them kind of chatting and looking around like all right this is this is going to be the real deal here like this is a step up which is exactly what a national championship should be you want to bring the best of the best and then you want to um set the stage for them to to duke it out and and decide who comes away you know the best team um, as far as the, you mentioned like the course design, this year's course was, I would say, um, very approachable. So there were teams there, obviously, that weren't at the top of the sport. Some of the people, some of the teams there, this was their first national championship race. You had a few bold racers we can talk more about later. This was their first race ever. You know, they got, <laughs> they got uh, looped in or hooked in, however you want to say it, uh, by their teammates. And it was a heck of a, that was a tough race to be your, your first one. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the course itself, it, uh, for those that aren't as familiar, I think we talked about this a little bit the last, last podcast. Traditionally, way back in the day, courses were straight line, you know, points one through 30. You get them in order and that's it. And over the years, it's evolved to, um, what's called a Rogaine style, which is the first element of competition is who can get the most points. And then after you look at who gets the most points, if you have the same number of points, then it's based on time, right? So it's like, it's a way to have top-notch teams and you know weekend warrior teams out there in the same event um, and ways for those weekend warrior teams to kind of you know manage their race in a way that they can still finish inside 30 hours and still have a really good time. And this particular course was was Rogaine style, and it opened with that clover leaf that I'm sure Paula talked about, which made it a very uh, tactical or strategic race. Like teams really had to think about how they were going to approach things. And so, as opposed to you are at point A, and in 30 hours you have to get 120 miles away to point B, go. You know that's kind of one mentality. This was. You're going to have a lot of sections. You're going to have a lot of transitioning, which is going from one discipline to another. And in the first stage, which was five legs, teams got to pick the order they wanted to do them in. So there was, again, lots of kind of tactical, strategic decision making that went in um, went into people's races on race day. And it was it was it was fun to watch teams struggle with that and and um figure out the, the best way for their team to do it and um interestingly enough the top three teams the podium top three teams in the podium did almost the exact same thing um didn't know what the others were doing at all um but they almost the top two picked the exact same sequence of events for stage one and then the third place team just swapped the last two 
So that was kind of interesting to see. So Wadali was the uh, overall winner and followed by Quest Racing from Washington and then Rib Mountain Racing, who is kind of the, the local hometown hero, if you will. They've been really active uh, in Wisconsin adventure racing for a number of years now. The uh, Good for them getting up on the podium. I know that yeah, I know sure. we're going to speak with Tim later on this week and, and Tim Buckholz from, from Rib, um, the, the, the wizard of Wisconsin. Right. And I'm sure yeah. that I'm sure that the, uh, the, 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 the cheese fueled him to, to a third place podium finish. So we're, we're proud of Tim and his whole team there. Recognizing that the, the, the top three teams did that so, so aggressively with each other, was it hard to track them through the Rogaine style on the, while they were up there? So it was a little tricky on the Cloverleaf at the beginning until you had teams having completed the same segments or the same legs you couldn't do a like for like comparison, right? Because you have one team coming off of, of leg A ahead of somebody who came off leg C. Well, that's not like for like, but we had those top three teams all did the same three legs first. So then as soon as they all cleared the, the that third leg, then we had, you know, apples to apples. And we could say, oh, okay, there's like 40 minutes and then there's another 30 minutes, you know, between these teams. And it... <laughs> We were eyeballing those teams because we knew they were at the front and we, we did some analysis here and there of other teams, but there was just so much going on and teams doing different things. We're like, you know, we're going to wait until teams clear stage one and then we'll have a real good idea like who's gotten all the points so far because that's that's a big, big indicator of, you know, who's competing for a, a podium spot or a top 10. Um, and then, you know, what time, what time they roll out of stage one. Gotcha. And obviously road gain style for our listeners in some races, you have to go through the entire race point to point to point. Road gain is basically choose your own adventure, right? There's right. X amount of points out there go get them however you want. Um, I did like when Paula said how there was the, you were not allowed to do two disciplines back to back. Like you had a, you, yeah. you had to go from trek to a paddle. You couldn't do trek, trek, paddle, paddle, bike, bike. You had to do all of that. She really made, uh, she made transitioning a discipline in and of itself. Yeah, she mentioned that. And there were some teams that were in and out really quick, and some teams that made a meal and hung out. You had mentioned earlier that there was a uh, a person whose first adventure race ever, ever was uh, uh, the national championships. I believe he was a member of Team Onyx. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that was. Um, you know, when I think about memorable moments of the weekend that was one of them and i freak i know it was dark out i want to say it was sometime around midnight uh midnight 1 a.m and they were in transition and i think they, they'd wrapped up stage one and they were moving on and uh one of our media team was there kind of talking to him and i'm listening to this guy and <laughs> he actually won uh one of our spirit awards uh for his attitude and the way he just kind of um, perfectly exemplified the spirit and the stoke you'd hope to see, you know, in an adventure race. But uh, he was <laughs> he was talking about how he had never been in a canoe at all uh, before race day, and they had never been on a mountain bike before. Um, but he was there because he loved challenges and he loved taking on challenges with his team, and he was super excited. And he was just you know, just full of that energy, you know, almost bubbling over. And I was just like, man, that is, that's impressive. That makes me feel pretty lame for the times where I've been like tired, you know, and kind of whiny. I was like, I really need to work on my attitude a little bit because, you know, the positivity that he had, you could tell it was rubbing off on his teammates and it was rubbing off on us, you know, and, and he wasn't the only one. There was two other people that raced with a very experienced racer and it was their first race. 
you know, one of them uh, was her boyfriend and the other was somebody I think they found on a mountain bike for him. And I can't tell if they were joking or not, but it sounded like they may have mildly misled him that it was a mountain bike race as opposed to a race that included mountain biking, but they got him there and he had a blast. So, and you, you, know, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the stories, right? It's the, it's the spirit yeah. of adventure racing and what carries us along. And, you know, I, I mean, I do look forward to talking to, to the teams that, that did very, very well and the teams that scored the most points, but it's those racers that really are, are great for us to talk to and to listen to and to hear from because of their unique perspective and how they walked into this race. Um, I, I get a kick out of the fact that it was a couple that was dating race together. Um, I'm, I'm assuming they're still dating. The, um, the dark zone will investigate that and find out. For, for the yeah, rest of I, think, the world. I think they were smiling at the post race. So nice. either they were really good at pretending or everything, you know, went well. So, um, and then the other one is the, obviously the idea that they possibly lightly misled their, their teammate friend to have a good time. Yeah. Is there mountain biking? <laughs> oh, there's a ton of mountain biking. There's also trekking and paddling. Um, Which was true statement. There was a lot of mountain biking and it was good technical mountain yeah, biking. They, they, there were some other stuff too. They, they, they lightly <laughs> misled their friend, lightly misled. Um, uh, an outright lie, maybe not lightly misled. So it, it appears to me, Garrison, that you saw during the race, you saw the whole um, spectrum of experience, right? You saw these heavy hitter teams come in, uh, obviously Wadali, Quest, Rib Mountain. I know that teams come in from um, Expedition Oregon. I know that Ben Racing was there. Rootstock Racing was there. Um, I believe AR Georgia sent a team. So clearly people were magnetized to come to nationals. The appeal being obviously the location, the appeal being where the quality of the race course, uh, Paula has an excellent reputation for being a great race director, the return from COVID, all of that. Um, and so it's really good that you were able to check off all of those boxes as your first as uh, your first race as the director of USARA. What do you wish had gone better? When you think a bit about it, you've done your post-race debrief. What parts of the race did you say, you know, we did a good job here, but in the future, we'd, we'd probably tune this or change this or possibly reconsider this? It's a, uh, it's a good question. And it's one of the things that I think we did the best is also the same area that I see a ton of potential for improvement. And you know, USARA, we're going to bring adventure racing to the masses. We're going to help people understand what the sport is, maybe starting with friends, family, coworkers, colleagues, you know, people that are one degree of separation, if you will, from an adventure racer. Uh, but then beyond that, and, and bring it to people that are enthusiastic about endurance sports and help them understand the sport and then ultimately help them follow the sport. And so we invested a lot of resources in, uh, in media. And like you commented before, um, we kind of threw the kitchen sink at it and we did a whole bunch of stuff, some of which we were super confident was going to work, some of which we weren't sure, but we wanted to try. And I think we did, uh, I, we did the best job of um, kind of broadcasting coverage, if you will, for the race, especially for a race this length. And this is where people who aren't as familiar with adventure racing, listening to this podcast, I apologize for how absurd this is going to sound. But for a short event, like a 30 hour race, it's kind of hard to do coverage of an adventure race because you've got remote locations, you've got GPS data, you've got all these things you're trying to pull in this information and then distill it into a way that people can understand and then push it back out there. When you got a five, six, seven day race, you've got time. You know, people are going to check in once a day, see how things are going. When it's a 30 hour race, you're on a much different schedule. And so we had a combination of people watching the tracker and talking to teams and breaking down, like this is where the, the, the competitive part of the race, this is where things stand and this is how things look. 
But then we had the media team out there too, getting that, if you want to think of it as like color commentary, like interviewing teams on the course, in, on the bikes, in their boats, out on treks. How's it going? How are you feeling? What brought you here? You know, things like that. And that really helped people see not just dots on the map, right? But also see what people are experiencing. Because like you said, the sport is the best sport for stories when it comes to being able to um, distill an athletic event into stories that are compelling. I don't know that there's any sport that's, that's better than this. So in my opinion, I mean, you know, my humble opinion, we, we crushed it on that. But we also learned so much. It's like one of those things when you start to learn something, you realize, oh, man, we could do this and we could do this and we could do this. And so that's something I think that everybody's going to be excited to see what we do in the future, because we're going to continue to upgrade and improve that coverage and media component for nationals. And then we're going to roll that down into the regional championship races to where it may not be quite as um, robust as for nationals, but there will be media and coverage for those events. And then eventually when we've got all the kinks worked out in a nice streamlined, efficient way of doing this, we can bring that to race directors that are ready to take it to the next step and cover their own races and give them a tool that they can use and they won't have to figure a whole bunch of stuff out, right? We can say, hey, this is the proven model. This is what you need to do it. And we can help you do that. And then they can bring their event to their local community uh, or to the nation on a wider level as well. So it sounds like the Nationals was not only um, the national championship, but also a proving ground for some of this approach and this technology, whether it be the interviewing the racer in race while they're in the canoe or in transition to moving on the course, the ability to track racers a bit more closely, the ability to offer live update along the way. And, and your point's well taken that a lot was thrown at the average viewer and the idea of finding out where different stories were. So kudos to USARA for doing that, right? For, for recognizing that the attempt on your side to try all of these new things, because some things could have been total flameouts, but at least you got a lot of actionable data and understanding to bring yeah. back to the regional directors, bring back to the local RDs, which they can then use to promote their own races. What else did you, in your, in your debrief afterwards, did you think you would possibly tweak or change team selection, Obviously, you nailed race location, you nailed race director, you nailed all of those things. What else do you think you might want to change going into next year? Yeah, well, there's things that you know, even before the event's over, like, hmm, yeah, we're going to do that differently next year. Then there's things that it does take some time to process and to debrief. But one thing that we did this year that was a little bit different um, was we provided teams with fully pre-plotted -pre maps, meaning that all the points were marked on the maps for teams. Um, in the past, teams would have to do at least some amount of plotting, which is basically you're given a list of X and Y coordinates and you have to go plot them on the map as to where the points are. So we took that task off of teams for this event. And then we basically we started the event at 7 a.m. And that's when teams got their course books and their maps. And we gave them an hour to prep and get started. And in hindsight, I don't feel like that was enough time. And it's because the course was so uh, technically challenging. And, and with the, um, right, what I mean, so when I say technically challenging, I mean, you like, it wasn't just figuring out your route from one to two and two to three and three to four. It was what order do we do these legs in, you know, and, and what are the limitations? What can we do? What can't we do? There was just a lot to process. 
And I want to have a standardization to nationals to where you show up, you know certain things are going to be consistent. We locked teams down at 7 a.m. because we didn't want teams to be able to access their phones or their computers or things like that because there are certain things you can do once you have course information. You can you know, pull up Google Earth, you can start looking at some things and, and savvy teams may know how to do that. And we wanted to level the, the playing field from a competitive standpoint. I love that idea and we're going to stick with that. But giving teams more time to process stuff, that was a big like, I don't mind there being some pressure. I don't think anybody is going to deny the fact that having to do some things under pressure is kind of the sport. Like you're transitioning fast, you know, you're trying to make route decisions fast, you're adapting to adversity fast, but I don't want to make it unnecessarily challenging. And so we talked about some ways we can improve that, you know, maybe giving teams the course book first. We don't give them a half hour to digest the course instructions and then give the maps. And the only reason to do that is once you give teams the maps, you know, like the brain's shut down. You look at the maps, you get what you minimum you need to, to mark your route on the map because that's what feels the most important. And in a lot of ways it is. But um, we do know some teams kind of missed some of the, the rules that were in the book. And it's because they were on that uh, on that short clock, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of pressure there. And I don't know, you know Brent. Freeland from Rootstock actually just wrote a race report where he said that in hindsight, he feels like if his team had started 10 minutes late, they would have done better. And Brent's an experienced racer, Rootstock's an experienced team. And for him to say, yeah, if we just spent 10 more minutes, we would have had a better race. That was like one more little notch on, you know, okay, next year, let's talk about how much time we give teams with what information to make sure that we're not creating too much unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, and I want to post a copy of uh, Brent's race report to the show notes because everybody here who's <laughs> new and experienced should read that his race report. Now, now I know Brent's probably going to listen to this. I think he was unduly hard on himself, but that's a different, that's, a, that's <laughs> another conversation to have and Brent yeah. and I'll have that privately. Um, but I think it's important for, for everybody who listens to this, the new racer, the mid-level and experienced racer to also understand that the, um, no matter how many times you've raced. And I think he said, I want to say he did hundreds of races in his report. I don't remember it exactly. Um, some, I think he's done over a hundred yeah. for sure. Yeah. Sometimes the wheels just come off the wagon and they just had a tough race and start to finish and they hung in the entire time. Pivoting back to the new racer for a second, you use the word course book. Now we, we get maps to start a race. And what is the course book? Different race directors do this differently, but USARA has always done something consistent and it's where you get a book that has the uh, the written instructions on how to proceed through the course specific to that event and so it may say at the beginning this is what you're going to do like here's some off-limits roads etc and then it gets into stage one describes what discipline the stage is it shows you how many checkpoints there are um, we used uh, electronic um, punching, which is basically a digital way to track when teams get to each point. And there's a number on those little boxes that they use when they get to that point. And so you put that number in the course book. So if you get to checkpoint three, it doesn't necessarily say checkpoint three there. It may have a three digit code that says like one, five, two. And then you look in the book and it says one, five, two. You're like, okay, we're at the right spot. And so it goes through stage by stage and it gives you the instructions you need for that stage. Um, Sometimes, like I said, there's off limits roads. Sometimes there's specific private property that gets called out. Uh, sometimes there's a mandatory route that's dictated. Basically, all that information. So you take the course book, which is like your instruction manual, and then you get your maps and you put those two things together. And that's how you manage your race. 
In addition to that, teams also get a set of rules, and the rules are kind of um, event agnostic. In other words, like they apply to every event. Um, so the course book really drills into the specific instructions for that race. You mentioned the Spirit Award before, and you mentioned the those three racers that came across who really exemplified the spirit of adventure racing. What about teams? What were some teams out there that just persevered and carried on and just when things didn't go, they wanted to go. They just hung in there and they just really lived up to the course and they lived up to their own expectations. Oh man. You know, the, the, the easy answer for that is, is all of them, <laughs> you know, to some extent, because I think you'd be hard pressed to find an adventure racer that said, Oh, everything went perfect. Exactly how we wanted it to, you know, there's always something. Cause that's, that's part of what the sport throws at you. I think more than most other sports, um, you know, the third place team, you know, Rib Mountain, I would know them pretty well. I'd see them in TA. I'd ask them in the transition area where they switch from one discipline to another. And I'd ask them, how's it going? And they're always, you know, upbeat. And I would say, um, uh, are you ahead of, on, or behind, like, your schedule? And and Tim, the captain that you're going to talk to, he'd be like, oh, we're ahead of schedule, feeling really good. And we had the times posted, like, for other teams and how they're doing. And they'd find out that, like, a couple other teams were – you know, half hour to an hour ahead of them. That can be pretty like when you know you're having a really good race and you are kind of the hometown hero team and you find out that there's a team like 45 minutes to an hour up on you. Some people could be like, just hang their heads and be like, oh crap. Well, I guess, you know, it's not in the cards. Now they were positive, just kept doing their thing and, and racing their race and, and, and kept moving. Um, you know, you had, we mentioned, uh, Bend Racing, uh, Jason Magnus on one of the Bend teams, he snapped his handlebar in half, um, which I, th- I don't think you need to be an experienced mountain biker to know that makes riding a bike incredibly <laughs> difficult. Um, you know, that roll in the TA. And yes, just, I, I would direct you. It's hard for me with yeah. a full set of handlebars to ride my bike. I just <laughs> yeah, want right? to say it out loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they roll into TA and another team, and they, they kind of thought they may be done for at that point because it was early-ish in the race. But another team was there that had a member drop and they offered up a mountain bike and um, they kept rolling. So, you know, it's in the team that I, um, you know, usually race on, they had some things not go their way, but they kept their heads up and just kept on plugging away. And that's, that's what you do. Right. So it's like, it's the very nature of the sport is you go out there to almost willingly have some adversity thrown in your face just to see what you can do with it. And, um, yeah, so seeing all the teams do that is always enjoyable, especially when it's like 12 hours in, 14 hours in, you know, people feel like crap. You know, that part of their brain is saying, boy, sure would be nice to stop right now. Um, you know, we had hot food for them after stage one. There was a campfire out there. We gave them all the reasons in the world to quit, but no, I just kept plugging along. And that's, and for the, for the new racer here, huge piece of advice right there. Don't go near the campfire. <laughs> Never, never, and never <laughs> sit down by the campfire. Big nope. rule: don't do that. You're, you're, you're. You get pulled into that, and off you go. You know, you, it's funny, Garrison. You bring up this idea for me that we, we, I need to do a podcast episode about the, um, the things that we talk about that like blow the minds of people who don't do adventure racing. Like the yeah. idea that, like, you know, the handlebar breaks. So rather than quit the race, they find a new bike. Like they're, they come into, they're wet and they're cold. And what do they do? They just merely put on dry clothes and go right back out into the rain. Like all of these things that we do as adventure racers, that non-adventure racers are just going to be like, oh my goodness, like, yeah. okay, guys, whatever you say. And we talk about these things 
you know, the kind of uh, the, the race culture we have is if it's very common, like we would never think to, to come off a race course with the exception of a, of, a, of a teammate injury, a personal injury or a huge piece of equipment failure. Otherwise, right. you just you go right back out there. Um, so I think that's an interesting if, uh, if somebody stumbles across this podcast and they're listening, they're supposed to be shaking their head at their at their podcast player. You know, like, who are these, yeah. these Martians that are having these conversations? Oh, there's, you know, you talk about adversity, the, the reigning all male team champions, Michigan racing addicts, if this, they won again this year, the all male division is their third year in a row, I believe. And we're watching them on, on tracking. And we know about how long it's taking teams to get with the last little bike section done, like five, six, seven miles, something like that. And they're not coming off this last O course very like when they need to be you're watching the dot watching the dot and you can click on the little dot and you can see when it last updated we're like nope it's updating they're not they're not on their bikes yet and they get on their bikes and we're like oh man they're not going to make it you know they're going to be late they're going to miss that 2 p.m cutoff and they buried themselves i mean all three guys crossed the finish line nobody said a word nobody smiled <laughs> they all did varying degrees of collapsing on the ground and laid there. One guy was in pretty bad shape for a while. We had to check on him, make sure everything was okay. So they were late and they got penalized, but because they busted ass as hard as they did, the penalty was small enough that they still won. So literally 30 hours of racing and then bury themselves on the bike and just go all out to get in and then still manage to pull off the win. So like when you look at all endurance sports, you got to have a no quit attitude, right? You know, ultra running, you know, gravel racing, endurance, bike racing, all that, but like to have a team commit together to not pull on the plug when you like, there's almost no chance of achieving your goal and just say, forget it. We're going to go for it. That, that was awesome to see. I pitied, like, I felt bad for it. I was really glad I didn't feel like they did when they crossed the finish line. Cause they were obviously hurt and really bad, but it totally paid off for them. And that's, and to your point, the idea that the adversity and they didn't quit and they realized that they, they did what they had to do at that time to get themselves across the race course, because it's good to point out that there's a, there's a steep penalty for missing the time. Like every, there's a certain yeah. amount of point deduction per minutes following being late. So we put a huge bounty out there and you have to get there across the line to make certain. Um, were there any, the rule book being the rule book in terms of roads you can't go on in terms of places yeah. you can't cross. How did teams do with that? Did anybody get thrown off by the by the the go no go places, or did everybody sort of understand the course, stay off the private land, or was that a challenge for anybody? We had a few um, no no private land issues, um, in part because of the course design and you know clear instructions. Really, the only place you could get in trouble with private land is if you decided you didn't want to paddle anymore and you just beached your boat and took off cross country to get a point. Then you're going to be running through people's yards, but nobody did that. Um, I think we have four or five teams incur penalties. Um, one team rode on an off-limits road on, on stage one. A couple teams um, did the two segments back-to-back. And one I can think of one team knew it, and they said, we're going to go for it. We've got time. We've got it. We'll take the penalty and see what we can do and make up for it. Um, one team opted not to do the last stage. Um, just because like, well, we're going to take the penalty anyways, and it's an optional, uh, optional leg, not stage. Um, and a couple teams missed that there was a cutoff we had on leg E, a little bit of riding on a road we didn't want people on after dark. Um, and so we said, you know, you have to finish the, it was a bike to a trek, do a quick trek, and then hop back on the bike and come, come home. 
An interesting side note on that track. Uh, that's where the compasses didn't work. Um, can you, I don't know can if you, you say more about that a little bit. We haven't talked about that. Yeah, Hold on, bring that yeah, up. You had compasses not yeah. working your race. So normally this isn't a, a, too much of an issue, and um, Paula discovered it when she was course scouting. And it's basically due to mineral deposits in the ground. You know, compasses are magnetic, and you got too much of the wrong type of mineral in the ground, and you're going to have issues. And so we weren't like tricky about it. We told teams ahead of time. We even Paul did this nice video showing like, hey, look, this is me doing it. This is what happened. And that leg I was telling you about, leg E, um, it worked out well because they had a cutoff to leave the trek at 8 p.m. So in other words, you have to be done trekking and on your bike and heading back to HQ by 8 p.m. on Friday. Well, what that did is that pretty much guaranteed that everybody was going to be on that leg in the daylight. And it still messed with people. You know, it's like it was a sunny day, so you could look at where the sun was in the sky and stuff like that. But it's hard enough to stay on course with the compass when it's working, when your brain is telling you, I feel like we should go more right. But you're looking at the compass and it's like, nope, we should be going straight. Don't turn right. Well, then the compass starts screwing with your head because the needle's just pointing the flat out wrong direction. And um, yeah, everybody acknowledged that it was there. Some teams struggled with it more than others. You know, we saw some dots spend a little extra time to get some bonus time in the woods, you know, um, likely due to the compass throwing them off. But um, so it was kind of you to tell them and give the video. You could yeah. approach that differently. You could have told them nothing. You could have told them that on the race course, your compass is going to go hairy and you could, you could tell them and show them a video. Was there any debate about doing number one or number two, never telling them or kind of warning them? No, no. Cause you know, the goal is to make the event, um, as pure and fair a competition as possible. And part of that is making sure that everybody has the same information. And, you know, maybe there's some people that are familiar with the area or may have an idea that that could happen. And that gives them a significant advantage. It's just based on, you know, random knowledge they may happen to have. And we don't really want that. Um, so, yeah, we, we never really even questioned that we were going to tell them not only that it was out there, um, but specifically where it was. Speaking from my personal experience navigating for almost 20 years or 20 years, if you tell me there's a part of the course where the compasses don't work, I am going to blame that on every single mistake I make. <laughs> so, this is clearly you know, the place. Getting, yeah, obviously, this is, it's, 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 Garrison, this is the 14th place like that. Shut up. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we never really had any question. We were going to tell them that it was out there and also tell them specifically where it was. In your, in your own opinion, recognizing that you, you work with a, a board and a adventure racing community, was there anything in this race that's going to definitely be carried over to future national championships? Yeah. The con so some of the consistency that I was talking about, you know, we want teams to know when they show up like, okay, I'm not saying this is exactly how we're going to do it, but as an example, we get our course mat or our course instructions at seven, we get our maps at eight and the race starts at nine. And like, that's just going to be how it is every time. Um, most likely we'll stick with pre-plotted maps that allows teams, they're still on the clock. They only got an hour, you know, to, fit, to plot, to mark up their maps and mark the routes that they want to take and stuff like that. But we're taking the actual plotting time out of the equation. We'll definitely keep the lockdown, you know, to, to level that playing field. Um, We'll definitely prioritize finding a host location that allows us to do things as smoothly as we did um, at this race. Being able to do pre-race, post-race, um, have an HQ, all that stuff from one place uh, it makes, so, makes things so much easier. Um, 
it'll be tougher to do in some venues than others, but I think it's really important to that overall experience. And, you know, we want to make sure when teams show up, you know, they're here for the USA Area National Championship and you can kind of put that effort into uh, making sure that they know like, yeah, this is the host spot. This is where it's all happening. So um, yeah, that those things will definitely do. Um, there's been, I, we've mentioned early on, um, course design. And there's something I'll just touch on real quick in, in that um, every, <laughs> there are a variety of opinions about like the ideal adventure race course design. It's one of the beauties of our sport, but it, it's also a great uh, source of, you know, barroom debate, if you will. Mm-hmm. Some people feel like it's got to be that point to point, And some people feel like it, it, the Rogaine style. Some people, I talked to one person after the race that felt like as a national championship, it should be unclearable. So even the winning team has to strategically drop points and stuff like that. Hey, you know what? The beauty of the sport is you're entitled to your opinion. That That's not what I typically care for. Um, but, you know, there are all types of races out there. And um, whatever your preference is, you know, you can find a race that just really scratches that itch. But um, we probably will look at more of a... Um, straight line feel, but with still having the optional points in there. I know there are some races out there that have like mandatory points and pro points or things like that. Um, we want to keep it so that the top team, you know, is finishing in that 20, winning in that 24 hour ish time frame. Um, and then when you look at a winning time of 24 to do that exact same course would take a lot of teams 30, 36 hours. Right. So if we can pull that in so everybody can get across the finish line in, in 30, uh, that would be ideal. So there's lots of awesome discussion about that going on. There always is. It's a conversation that's been in the sport since I've started doing the sport, basically. And, you know, this year's course brought up a lot of that conversation. Some people saying they loved it. Some people saying that it was OK. Some people saying I'd perform more straight line. And we're listening to all those people and, you know, we'll continue to allow those race directors to bring their personality both in their course style and in their home turf um, while moving a little bit towards a, a certain level of consistency with the experience from the USA or national championship perspective. So there's certain things you know you're going to get. Um, and then other things will vary a little bit depending on who's hosting. Right. And I think you're spot on there. The, um, the, the, the debate over course design the debate over how long not how long it's 30 hours is 30 hours but like the the order of the events the disciplines things like that i think you're spot on that that is an an eternal conversation that will be held again and again and again and once again it's if you try to satisfy satisfy everybody you end up satisfying nobody right and so therefore and so it sounds like to me that as usara goes forward a lot of the logistical structures outside the race itself are pretty much set the starting time for the race, access to the maps, the course book. I, I think the having the venue being large enough to host the entire event, it is a national championship, right? So it should right. be held in a, a large enough place where people could stay, where there could be meetings, where they, all of those things can take place. So I think you're, you're spot on with that. Um, have they talked at all about, and I, and I apologize if you shared this publicly already, what does 2022 look like for the national championships? Yeah, so what 2022 looks like is we're going to California. So we were committed to go west um, because there's not been as much activity with USA area out west in recent years. And that's something that we really want to bring the whole country into the sport. You know, if we're going to make 
Um, if we're going to bring AR to the masses, that, that means the masses of the entire United States. Mm-hmm. And so we really wanted to look at some um, Western hosts. We had a, a few candidates, really good ones that we're looking at. And so right now um, we've got a race director, Isai Horowitz, with All Out Events that's going to be hosting in 2022. We're dialing in a few details on the exact location. We've got um, the primary uh First choice, is what I'm trying to say, is in the Sierras. Um, but as most people may know, there's a little concern with fire out there right now. So we're kind of uh, talking to the land managers and stuff like that and seeing what, what all is damaged this year and coming up with a, a sound plan for next year. And then we actually have a backup location as well, which I don't know if that's ever been done before. But again, because of the state of affairs, as far as wildfires go out West, it really felt like the only way to do this um, was we've got to have something that gives us maybe a chance if, if things get out of hand. And um, so, yeah, Ishai is really experienced. Uh, he and his team, they've done a lot of races and had some really good conversations. We're aligned on what the vision is for 2022 for the event. And we're going to bring a lot of Teams from the West, probably a lot of first-time national championship teams coming to their first national champ. Um, and then we're going to bring, you know, a lot of the teams from the East Coast that maybe haven't traveled that much for a race before. Some of the top teams have done international racing and stuff like that, but you get a lot of teams that maybe haven't raced too far west of the Mississippi. So we're going to do everything we can to make that race accessible for, te- uh, for teams out east um, to come on, come out west and, and race in a new place. Will it always be the second weekend in September? That's a really good question. Probably not. We're going to get those dates nailed down in the next couple of weeks. And there's a chance because of some of the locations, both you got fire season, but you also got like uh, just temperatures. You know, one of uh, the potential areas will be going through as you know, normal temperatures in the 90s in September. Um, again, I'm all about overcoming adversity. I don't really want to race super hard when it's 95 degrees out. And uh, that's not super fun. Uh, but more importantly, there's the safety concern. If you get a bunch of teams out there in that kind of heat, especially if they're not used to it, you know, you're setting yourself up for some some heat situations uh, from safety perspective. So um, we may look at moving it back um, I really wish we nailed that down already, but again, things, things are still on fire. Um, we'll get that nailed down in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, if we go to October for an event like this, that's great. But then what if we want to do something at elevation, you know, in the future? Uh, so there, I think the, the plan um, will be that we're going to be announcing more than a year out in advance. You know, we're going to, we're already thinking about the 2023 location where that might be. And so as we get further and further out with this plan, if that date moves a little bit, then it's not going to be too much. You know, all the race directors will be able to plan around it and then all the racers can plan around it as well. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how all that works out. Is there anything about USARA in general you want to share? Nationals was fantastic. It sounds like you have a good plan going forward. Anything jumping out about USARA as you this is the de facto end of the season, right? Even though it's not the end of the calendar year, the national championships gives everyone a chance to sort of sit back, catch their breath, think a bit about how the season went and what's going to go in the road down the road. Anything there you want to share about the direction of USARA? 
Yeah, I think now that we've been through our first year, kind of full cycle, if you will, like you said, the national championship kind of feels like you're the, the cap to the to the season. Um, we're looking to the future. Like I mentioned, we have lots of big plans when you look at coverage for things like nationals and bringing AR to the masses. We're going to be doing a lot of really good things to get the word out about adventure racing. So as far as what people are um, kind of what I want them to be thinking about is if you're a racer, if you're an experienced racer, I said this at the close of the, of the awards banquet, um, get people out, get them to a race. You know, we're going to give you the stuff. If you need a little bit to nudge somebody over the line to get them excited, we're going to be putting out the kind of media and the kind of stuff you can share with a friend that's going to make them go, Oh man, that looks badass. I'm going to do that. Perfect. Great. Let's go. Um, if you're listening to this and you're kind of still wondering, I don't know if I want to do this or not. Just do it. I mean, if you want to email me, garrison at usaria.com, and I will you know, answer any questions that people have. We've got tons of people in the AR discussion group on Facebook. You know, we've got um, some um, content we put up already on usaria.com geared towards new racers, first timers. We're going to be adding to that in the coming months. So don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to get out there to that first race. And USA area is going to be doing everything that we can to help people help people do that. So it sounds like the uh, the, the USA area leadership has shown the capacity to 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 survive a race season, put on a national yeah. championship. And now you're on the other side of it. So it yep. and it, it sounds as like if USA area is in good hands going forward as you as you continue to grow um, what the racing association is in the national in the national scene. Um, thank you for for coming on the dark zone today, Garrison. It was good to have you on. Congratulations on a, on a wonderful national championship. Congratulations on all the good feedback. Um, it's really, um, it's wonderful for the community to know that we're in good hands and that the we've grown, we've grown um, in many ways and we continue to grow. So thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. And, and you mentioned the community and honestly, that's where this all comes from, right? So like USA Area is here to kind of um, coordinate that energy and that passion that comes from the AR community. So. We all want to see uh, the sport be successful. We all want to see the sport endure. And, and it is because of the, the passion and the energy of racers and race directors alike. So keep that going. If you have any ideas for us, anything, anything you want to see us look at doing, don't hesitate to reach out. You know, we're, we're here to kind of bring everybody together and uh, to take things to that, to the next level. Mm-hmm.